Our scripture text this morning is Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I was thinking yesterday about the word muse. It's not really a word that we use a lot anymore. Um, to muse over something is just to think deeply about it or, or to be absorbed in thought about a specific topic or a specific thing or person. Um, now, we don't really use that word, but the, a word that we do use pretty often is to be amused. So any middle schooler can tell you the Greek prefix of a just means not. So if we think muse is to think deeply, to be amused is to not think deeply. That's not inherently a bad thing. We go to amusement parks because we want to go and enjoy ourselves and not have to put a lot of thought into the deep cares of the world. We just want to go and have a good time. And we watch sports and we play games on our phones to be amused. That's not necessarily a problem. But where there is a danger in amusement is when it seeps into the life of the church. Now, I'm not talking about uh, motorcycles doing backflips behind the guy preaching on a Sunday morning, although that is also bad. What I'm talking about is this uh, flippancy in the way that we approach knowledge about God. So every other year, Ligonier is a ministry that puts out a survey that they call the State of Theology. So this is a survey. They ask Christians and non-Christians a number of questions about God, about the Bible, uh, just to try to get a, a temperature gauge as to where, uh, where America is and where the American church is in relation to their knowledge about God. Needless to say, uh, the survey results tend to be fairly disheartening. Uh, this year's survey, 43% of people, these are just, uh, this is just people who identify as Christians. 43% of people who identify as Christians said that Jesus is a great teacher, but he's not really God. So people who say that they are Christians. 56% of people who identify as Christians say that God accepts the worship of people from all religions, including those who are worshiping in Islam or Judaism and other religions. See, I, I, I think those numbers... That, I don't think they're meant to scare us necessarily to think that the church is going to just fade away because we're moving you know, further away from the good doctrine. I think that Christ is the one who builds his church, that God will preserve that. But I do think they should make us question, why are there so many people who are in churches who don't know basic doctrines about the Bible? This is an important matter. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, then uh, welcome. We're also in the third part of a three-part sermon series looking at what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. So in Matthew chapter 22, some Sadducees ask Jesus what the greatest commandment is. He responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So we've already covered what it is to love God with all our strength, what it is to love God with all our heart. And this week we're kind of keying in on what it is to love God with our minds. This is what Christians are called to do. In our text in Romans 12, uh, Paul is really doing uh, or serving us with a transition. So a lot of Pauline letters, he starts the first major chunk with theology. These are truths about God, about man, about their relationship to one another. And then he pivots and tells us how we are to live in light of all of the things he's just said. So Romans 12 is one of those points in this letter. 
That's why it starts with, I appeal to you, therefore. That therefore isn't just a small therefore, it's all of the first 11 chapters of Romans that he is pivoting, saying, you've learned all of these things, and now this is how you live. Now, normally we try to give some degree of context. I'm not going to run through the entire book of Romans. Uh, If you want to do that, you can go back. We preached this book a few years ago. The sermons are all online. You can get as much Romans as you want. What I want to do is just hit a couple of verses that I think point us to what Paul is getting at, why he transitions with verses 1 and 2. I think he's pointing back to chapter 6 and chapter 1. So first in Romans 6.13, Paul says that Christians shouldn't present their bodies to be used for sin, but instead they should present their bodies to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and that their bodies should be used as instruments of righteousness. And then in verse 19, he says, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, leading to holiness. Well, that's where he's getting, getting at in verse 1 of chapter 12. He says that Christians are to live in a way that is offering up their bodies to God. Unlike the Old Testament sacrifices that died before they had any effect, Christians who have died to their flesh are now alive in the Spirit, and so we live now as sacrifices, offering up ourselves to God. We don't wait until we die now to effect change. We live regularly presenting our bodies to God. And then second, and this is really the topic that we'll dive into the most today, is the renewal of the Christian mind. So Paul picks this up in verse 2. I think he's going all the way back to chapter 1, starting in verse 18. And there he talks about the wrath of God that is revealed against unrighteous men who are suppressing the truth of God. Verse 25 says that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they chose to worship the creature rather than the creator. In response to their foolishness, verse 28, God gives them up to a debased mind. See, the men that Paul is speaking about in this context aren't people that are just uh, ignorant of who God is. They know God, they know about God, and they haven't seen him as worthy to influence their decision-making. They know who he is, but they don't really care about who God is or what he calls them to do or how he calls them to live. He gives them up to this debased mind, and then he goes on in the following verses to give the consequences of that debased mind. They are not necessarily pretty. We'll get into that in a little bit. And then in Romans 12, 2, he gives us the other side of the coin. So if that's what the debased mind looks like, instead of being conformed to the world, Paul says that we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. This is what happens in salvation. Christians are given a new mind and given new understanding. Now we're able to understand the things about God and the things of God and see the great value that there is in living in light of the realities of God. This is the contrast of Christian living. Christians aren't naive, as some people might think. Christians don't live according to the logic and the persuasions of the world. We live with a renewed mind, a renewed logic, as we live in light of that logic. Paul tells us the function of the new mind as well. That's the second half of verse two. He says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So loving God with my mind then means growing in my ability to filter all the things in life 
and understand what is the will of God through all of these things. So my dad likes to watch the show Gold Rush Alaska. I don't know if any of you watch that, uh, but essentially they dig these huge tons and tons of dirt in Alaska and they slowly but surely filter it down until they have just a little pan, hopefully a big pan, that's just the gold. That's, that's what Christian mind does. It, it filters out all of the things of life to see what is the will of God that is good and acceptable and perfect. It's a picture of the Christian mind. And see, I think Paul gives us a picture both of what God does in giving us a renewed mind and what we are responsible for in testing and discerning. Notice that God is the first mover here. Paul says that we are to be transformed. That's a passive voice. God is the actor in giving us this renewed and transformed mind. It's God alone who does this work. See, we aren't divine brain surgeons that can do this to ourselves. God transforms us and gives us renewed minds. Going back to that Romans 1 and 6 parallel, we aren't those who live with debased minds and live according to sinful ways. We aren't rebels who oppose God. That's what Paul actually says in chapter 7, verse 22, that after his conversion, it says that he delights in the law of God in his inner being, And that's not saying that there's some sort of sinless perfectionism that comes with conversion because right there in chapter seven, he also says that he's fighting against the decisions that he's making. He's doing what he doesn't wanna do and he's not doing what he does wanna do. So it's not a a, a sinlessness, but it's a transformation that we are no longer fundamentally rebellious against God. Because of this new mind, we now live in a direction that is seeking to honor God. And then the second half of this verse speaks to our own participation in this work. So this is sanctification or moving forward and becoming more saintly. This is a a work that we do alongside the Father. That's what he says when he says the phrase, test that you may discern the will of God. That phrase, test that you may discern, the, the picture that we're supposed to get is like putting things on a scale and weighing them to see if they balance. It, it's like Philippians chapter 1, verse 10, where he says, approve what is excellent and be so pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This is the role that we play in loving God. It is our role to be discerning all of our lives so we are constantly seeking to do God's will. And there's a reason that we do this. It's not as though we're just supposed to do this for no reason. It says that we discern the will of God because the will of God is what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is what is good for us. Now that's stark contrast to the consequences of the Romans one mind. Just a handful of the things that he says there. The Romans one mind is filled with evil and murder and deceit and gossip and hate, arrogance, many other not so pleasant descriptions. Christians are those whose minds have been renewed and we're constantly weighing out how we can honor God. Okay, so that's kind of the summary of what those two verses are talking about. I wanna step back a little bit and try to dig into what I mean when I talk about loving God with our minds. So this is kind of the the meat of the sermon, if you will. Uh, We're gonna look at this in two ways. First is why should we pursue growth in our knowledge of God? So what's the point? Is it actually worth growing in our knowledge or are we okay where we are? And then second is how can we pursue growth in our knowledge of God? So first, why is it important? And I'm gonna give two reasons for this. Number one, God has made himself knowable and he's worthy. So think about that. The God who is over all creation, who created all things by his word, didn't just create things and then kind of sit back in a rocking chair and just let it all play out off in the distance. 
Instead, the God of the Bible gave us the Bible, 66 books that are collected by dozens of authors, written over thousands of years, and in it we get a consistent picture of God that wants to be known, a God who comes to his people, who speaks to his people, who speaks through his people, who convicts and corrects and disciplines his people, but also comforts and loves and encourages his people. These things happen at the same time, and we see all of that just in the Old Testament. But Hebrews 1 tells us that God spoke in many ways to our fathers, meaning those of the Old Testament, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. So God has not only revealed himself to us in the Bible, but he's also revealed himself by coming and taking on flesh, becoming a man so that we could know him. This is the God of the universe that's meeting in homes of people that he created and eating fish with them. This is the almighty God. So we don't have to just hope that if we turn over enough rocks that we're going to happen upon some sort of knowledge of God. Rather, God has intentionally made himself knowable to us. And he's not only made himself knowable, but he's shown us that he's worthy to be known. As I mentioned, Romans 1 to 11 is full of promises of God that he's made to us. Uh, Just a handful of those, we are justified by his grace as a gift through Christ. Because of this, we now have peace with God. We know that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These promises and many others, they ought to stir us to want to savor the glory of God. He's worthy to be known. So Christians then ought to be ones that love to read their Bible, love to interact with our God, because we know that we can know him. So for us to think about these these two other aspects of this discipleship series, for us to love God with our heart, for us to love God with our strength, we have to love him with our mind. Jen Wilkin uh, is a Bible teacher in Dallas. She says, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. That's That's a great quote. It's true in every relationship that we have with anybody else that we know. We have to seek to grow in our knowledge of God if we want to grow in our love with our heart, in our love with our strength. And this study of the excellencies of God, this isn't just something that we kind of partition off and say, well, that's for uh, the, the pastors or the Bible teacher leaders. You know, I'm just the member of the Bible study. I don't really have to worry about that. That's not the way that God has instructed us. We're not supposed to just kind of look for a couple of nuggets we can hold on to every once in a while. Instead, We're supposed to seek to know God deeply. And this isn't like the philosophical, theological debates of like how many angels can fit on the head of a needle or or things that maybe you don't see a lot of practical benefit to. I'm talking about knowledge about who God is and what God has done because knowing these things should shape our worship of him. We serve a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit who's created us to glorify him. How, How well do you know your God? So concerning the Father, do you find comfort knowing that he is the author and the sustainer of everything, of your very life, that he has created us in a way that we breathe air in order to live, and he has created that air as well and given it to us to breathe. He, he sustains even us in every single heartbeat that we have. He's worthy. 
a few years ago, some of the men in the church read A.W. Pink's book, The Attributes of God. So it's a, a short book. It's a very dense book, but it's 24 chapters or like five or six pages each. And each chapter is a different element of an attribute of God. Uh, they talk about his eternality, his power, his perfection, his mercy, his love, his wrath, his blessing, and so many more of these other uh, just different sides of the diamond that we can learn about God that he's revealed to us. How well do you know God the Father? Or take the Son, and, and I'm just gonna read Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 because I love the book of Hebrews and because it's uh, just really dense Christology. In these four verses, there's 10 unique descriptions of Jesus. In the rest of chapter one, which is 14 verses, there's a total of 34 unique descriptors of Jesus. It's beautiful. This is Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The author of Hebrews sees in very clear ways the glory of the Son. He's the exact imprint of the nature of God the Father. He took on humanity. He made purification for our sins. He made purification for my, for your sins. And when he finished that work of purification, he sat down because there was no more purification that he needed to make. The priests of the Old Testament never sat down. We have very specific dimensions of everything about the tabernacle. One piece of furniture that wasn't there was a chair. There was nowhere for a priest to sit because there was always more purification to be made. Not so with Christ. Hebrews 10, 14, Jesus sat down because by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. How well do you know God the Son? Word the Holy Spirit. He is the one who applies the work of redemption to believers. It's through the work of the Spirit that we receive the gift of the grace of God the Father that's purchased through Christ the Son. The Spirit applies that to the Christian. It's the Holy Spirit who works in us to reveal our sin to us, to help us understand where we are in sin. And it's the Spirit who gives us the strength to fight sin and to flee from sin. This is, this is God. This is the Spirit of God. Do you see that growing in a knowledge of God matters? Because God and nothing about God is trivial, there's nothing about a knowledge of God that is trivial. Beloved, it's growing in the knowledge of who God is and what God has done and the promises He has made that He is going to keep that allow us to suffer, they give us strength to suffer, to rejoice, to labor, to work, and, and also to rest, and to confront, and to forgive. This comes from a knowledge of who God is and what God has done. Which brings me to the second reason that we ought to pursue a knowledge of God, and this, um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm just going to call this the danger of wimpy theology. Wimpy theology, not original to me. I've heard John Piper say that, and I loved it, so I'm going to go with that as well. The dangers of wimpy theology. And the second reason why we should pursue knowledge is because it's dangerous to have wimpy theology. Now, I'm going to need to nuance this point a little bit, so just bear with me. I say that there is a need to pursue knowledge because I think that a lack of knowledge about God, not hypothetical knowledge about God, but a lack of knowledge about God can make it tenuous, make our faith tenuous. It can make it potential that we can walk away from the faith or make it easier that we might walk away from the faith. I get that from Matthew 13, uh, but we'll get to that in just a second. One of the objections that I think uh, could be raised when you think about this sermon is we don't really need to have a robust knowledge of God in order to be saved. That was what Ray prayed. Praise God that that's true. It's not based on anything that we know or do that we are saved. It's only through the accomplished work of Christ making that purification for our sins. We don't get to heaven because we finally answered enough right questions on the quiz. That doesn't help us get there. But we aren't, uh, so as an example, the thief on the cross, I think this is a good example. You could say the thief on the cross, he probably didn't understand everything about what Christ was accomplishing in the atonement and exactly what the cross was achieving. He probably didn't know the intricacies of all the prophecies that were made and he didn't know all those things. And yet, Christ says to him, on this day you will be with me in paradise. That's true and a great blessing that it's through Christ's work that we go, that we have forgiveness of our sins The reality, though, is that none of us are the thief on the cross. We, if you are a Christian here and you are in the room, then you didn't die on the day that you became a Christian. And if God has left you here, it's so that you can continue to pursue growth in the knowledge of the glory of God. So there's two two kind of things that I want to look at as we think about dangers of wimpy theology. Two things. One is uh, personal holiness or obedience, whatever way you want to say that. And the second's kind of an apologetic, and that's where I'll get to that Matthew 13 idea. First, from a holiness standpoint, we need to grow in our knowledge of God, in our knowledge of God's word, so that we know how he has called us to live. He, He has ordered the world in a way that we're supposed to be obedient to, but if we don't know his word, it's really hard for us to walk in the right direction. Nobody accidentally falls into obedience, Look at our text in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, present your bodies as living sacrifices. In what way? They are holy and acceptable to God, not just any sort of sacrifice. In verse 2, he says that it's by testing we discern the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It requires testing, it requires sacrifice, and we do those things so that we know what it is to live in a way that brings honor to the name of God. So we just finished study through the book of 1 Timothy. When we went through 1 Timothy, we looked at the nature of the church, uh, the nature of the leadership of the church, and how members of the church are to interact with one another, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, younger men and younger women. Uh, We looked at uh, the nature of confronting false teaching and trying to protect and preserve right teaching. We talked about things as practical as money, how you spend and give. When we read through that book and studied through it, did it challenge you in the way that you have lived your life? This is what the Word of God does. It, it confronts our thoughts about God with true thoughts about God, and it should be directing and shaping us toward holiness. I think the, the warning here is, is a clear text from Leviticus chapter 10 of Nadab and Abihu. 
So in chapter 9 of Leviticus, Aaron, the priest, is making an offering to God. Five times in that chapter, it says that he did what was commanded of the Lord. And in making this incredibly intricate offering, he does what is commanded of the Lord. And the response of the offering, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. God accepts this worship because it is what he has commanded them to do. The danger comes in chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu are the sons of Aaron, and they make an offering of fire before the Lord. Chapter 10 says that he does, they do this in a way in which God had not commanded them. They did not do it in the way that God had asked them to do. The result of their offering is they are consumed by the very fire they offer and they die. I can't think of a much clearer example than knowing what it is that is the will of God and doing it the right way. It seems pretty clear. I, I, I get the feeling, Nadab and Abihu, I don't know this, but it seems like they're pretty earnest. They, they're going and making a second offering after an offering has already been made. I think maybe there's a chance their heart is even in the right place of wanting to give an offering to God, but they don't know God well enough to know how holy he is and how to worship him the right way. And so they kind of just run out before their feet are behind them and they make a mistake. They're misguided. I, I hope that we are people who see value in knowing God well enough to live in a way that pleases him. The second part of this is maybe an apologetic, uh, an apologetic, a, a, an ability to defend your faith. And this is where I, I want to give some nuance. Um, I think having a lack of depth of understanding of the things of God can make it very easy to walk away from the faith. I get that from Matthew chapter 13. This is Jesus talking in the parable of the seeds. It's a seed thrown, it lands in different areas, and it sprouts up or it doesn't sprout up for various reasons. One of those seeds that it's thrown lands on the path and birds come and snatch it away. And this is what Jesus says as he's interpreting what that's supposed to mean. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what happens when the so- with what is sown along the path. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody who wasn't a Christian who raised an objection to your faith that you had no idea how to address? So I'll give you a personal testimony, admittedly kind of an embarrassing one, but we'll do it anyways. In college, I was a young believer. I didn't know much about the faith. I think I sincerely trusted that Christ had died for my sins. That's about all that I knew. And I was sitting at, uh, at lunch with one of the guys on the basketball team at school, and we were talking about the faith. I told him I was a Christian, and he said, you know, I can't believe the Bible because there's just no way that a guy in the Middle East in, like, the year 30 could have found three guys named Matthew, Mark, and John. There's no way he found three American-named guys in the Middle East. And, I mean, that's as silly as they come. But I, I went to bed that night thinking, man, I might wake up tomorrow and not be a Christian because that's such a good point. Like, how did he find these guys? Now, if you have been in that, hey, maybe that's you too. I've been there with you, brother or sister. Um, if I had known it at the time, that's just because they were, the Bible wasn't written in English. Their names weren't Matthew, Mark, and John. They had Greek names because they lived in a Greek world. But at the time, I sincerely thought that was an objection to the faith that was going to make me say, I think I need to leave the church. It was that severe at, my, at that time in my life. And I know that's straightforward and pretty kind of simplistic. But sometimes the objections aren't that simplistic. Uh, what if somebody came to you and they said, well, you know, 
I don't think that Jesus actually died. I think what happened was Jesus was dying on the cross. He seemed pretty dead, so they took him down, they laid him in the tomb, but he actually just revived. He didn't die and resurrect. He just started feeling a little bit better, and he got up and walked out. How do we respond? Or uh, maybe they say, okay, Jesus really did die. They laid him in a tomb, but the disciples actually came, and they stole his body, and then they just lied. They made the whole thing up that he was resurrected. He actually was dead the whole time. They just hid his body. Now, those are two legitimate objections that, that people take to the authenticity of the story of the resurrection. And if you have the same amount of depth of spirituality that I had as a college student, those are things that might make it easier for the evil one to come and snatch you off the path. We're, we're really, we're, we're talking about doubts, right? Like, what I want to make sure, and this is where the nuance comes in, doubts aren't a bad thing. Everybody has doubts, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. Uh, C.S. Lewis talked about having uh, doubts when he converted and still having doubts. And he said, but I had just as many doubts when I was an atheist about if I could stay an atheist. So it's not inherently sinful to have doubts. The trouble is how we handle those doubts. See, for me in college, I just went back to my room and sat alone with all of the knowledge that I already knew, which wasn't enough, and I just thought, well, this must be the end for me. See, what I should have done and what I eventually did was I asked a brother who I knew could disciple me, hey, somebody told me this, what, what am I supposed to believe about this? And, and from talking to a brother who was a little further along in the faith, he helped me understand that at that point, I was kind of being silly in believing a false objection. Friends, we, we, uh, we all struggle at various points with doubts, but Christ has given us the church so that we don't struggle alone. We don't have to just kind of live alone in our own doubts. There's the two objections that I raised. There's good biblical and rational explanations to those questions and to many others that might be causing you to have some degree of hesitation about your faith. But if you have a shallow knowledge and you stay in that kind of shallow knowledge spot, I think it makes it more of a temptation to walk away from the faith. And that brings us to our second major bucket for the day, which is how do we then love God with our mind? So if, if we see that God has made himself knowable and that he's worthy to be known and that there's a danger to having a wimpy theology, how then do we pursue growth in our knowledge of God? I'm gonna give you four ways, and this is how we'll wrap up. Number one is to pray and ask God for help. As I've already said, verse two makes it clear that it's God who does this renewing of your mind. He is the one who gives us a renewed mind. So when we're thinking about pursuing growth, this really, it has to be where we start. Uh, The key uh, chapter in the Bible for this is Luke 24. Luke 24 uh, starts out with the resurrection of Jesus and uh, the, the, the women who see him or well, they hear from angels that he is not there, he is risen, and then they go back and they tell some of the disciples. And so there's a couple of stories in Luke 24 that give us a good picture of why this is important. Uh, the first one is two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus appears to them. They don't know that it's Jesus at the time, and he kind of asks them what they're doing. They're confused, but also hopeful because they think that Jesus might have resurrected, but they know he was dead, so they're, they're just kind of confused. And Jesus, it says that he shows them from Moses and all the prophets, which is just a summary for all of the Old Testament. He shows them all the things concerning himself. So Jesus as he has done throughout his entire life, is teaching them how the Bible points to him, that he is the Messiah. The second scene is Jesus appearing to his disciples, to all of them together, 
And when he appears to them, they think he's a ghost. So to prove that he's not just some ghost, he says, touch my hands, touch my feet. And then he says, I'll prove it even more. I'll sit down with you. And if you have some fish, I'll eat with you. And so he sits down, he eats with them, and he starts talking. And it says, he shows them again from Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, all the things that he has fulfilled. The key verse is verse 45 of Luke 24. In that it says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus opens their minds. These are the disciples that have been with him. They've heard from him. They've heard him teach. They knew the Old Testament a lot better than we know the Old Testament. But it's Jesus opening their minds after the resurrection that changes the whole direction of the church. That's all of the book of Acts that we see. That's in response to this opening of their minds. We have to ask God for help in order to understand his word, understand how it is to be interpreted, and how we're to live in light of his word, how to live wisely. Another angle of this is James chapter 1, verse 5. And James 1, 5 says, if, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. It's God who gives this wisdom, and we are to ask for it. It's an aspect of the nature of God. He wants to make himself known. He's created the world in a way that brings glory to himself. Do we, are, are we a people that ask God for wisdom in big things, big decisions, and in small decisions? Do we ask God for wisdom? Like Solomon, do we pray that God would give us an understanding mind? See, something is always feeding you wisdom. That, that can be good, healthy, biblical friends or information that's feeding you wisdom, or it could not be. It could be any other thing that's leading you in any other direction, but we are getting fed wisdom from somewhere. Where are you seeking wisdom? Number two, read the Bible intently. This is the second way that we can pursue growth in knowledge of God. Uh, the Bereans are really the textbook example for us here. So Acts chapter 17, this is Paul going around the known world and preaching the gospel from town to town. He goes first to Thessalonica, and the Thessalonians don't like what he's saying. They run him out of town, and so he goes from there to the town of Berea. He does the same thing. He teaches them from the scriptures. It says that they examined these things to see if they were so. They go back from what they heard, and they filter it through God's word to see if it's true. They eagerly sought to understand it. And Luke actually gives commentary on those Bereans doing that. He says, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. There is nobility in applying our mind to understand the scriptures. Now, a few different thoughts uh, trying to apply this. I'm not saying that your Bible study time has to be an hour, five days a week, and you have to have at least two commentaries open and at least five different color highlighters. And if you don't have that, then you're not reading the Bible intently. That would be a misunderstanding. Rather, what I mean is when you read your Bible, do you read it and you just kind of like, all right, I have to read two chapters today. So your eyes move down the pages and you turn the pages and your eyes move down. And then you walk away and you're like, I don't really know what I read, but I did turn the pages so I could put the check next to the box. It, that's not reading intently. Are, are we reading with our minds engaged on the word? One of the things I do for this, I read out loud sometimes because I know if, I'm, if it's early enough in the morning and if our newborn is not quite as sleepy as I wish she was, I need to stay awake. And so I'll just read the Bible out loud. That helps. Uh, maybe if you are in the same boat as I am and have maybe you're a parent of young children or, or maybe you're just in a very busy season of life at work or family or whatever it might be, maybe it's just hard to find time to really sit down and have quiet at all. 
quiet is hard to come by in our home. And if that's similar for you, how do you try to do this? Well, I've, senior year of college was a pretty busy season for me, and the, the man who discipled me and helped me out of my uh, sort of silly apologetic concern, um, I, I was talking to him and saying, man, I just wish I had more time to read the Bible, but I don't. Like, I, I just feel like I can't sit down and read the Bible. I've, I'm constantly on the move. He said, you need to think about it like eating meals on the battlefield. If you're at war and you're on the battlefield, you don't sit down to three hot, fresh, well-cooked meals a day. You eat whatever you can, whenever you can. If you get a granola bar here or like a sandwich there or whatever the, the, the MRE, the little quick meal you have, you eat whatever you can, whenever you can. That's the way I think some of us need to think about our Bible time. Are we taking advantage of little margins when we can get them? Maybe it's listening to the Bible in the car. Maybe it's listening to good, deep, spiritual Christian music. Things that you can use as almost like a savings account that you can pull from when you don't have enough time. You don't want to live on a savings account. But if you need that in a time of struggle, that's why you have it there. Do we have enough intentional Bible time that we have that savings account? Or here's one that I'm guilty of. How many of us, when we sit down to read our Bible, have their phones sitting right next to us and all it takes is one notification and 30 minutes are gone just like that? That is a temptation that I'm very prone to. And so I've learned either I throw my phone into another room or I leave my phone and I throw myself and my Bible into another room because I cannot have it near me. I will get distracted and I won't ever go back to the Word. I'll look down, it'll been 20 minutes, and I'll say, well, missed it today, I'll try again tomorrow. Are we intent in the way that we read our Bible? Are we thinking through ways to be intent in reading the Bible? Number three, we should be pursuing a knowledge because it helps us to grow in the way that we help ourselves bolster our faith and in the way that we help others. We grow in our knowledge because it helps ourselves and others. I think this is important in a sermon where I'm really just kind of talking about growing in knowledge because this can kind of come across as like, just fill your head with stuff and that's what's gonna be what fixes you. And that's just not the case. All of us know that practically. You don't just change your life just because you got a new software update. What I'm saying is that we need to read the Bible so that we can know the word better, so that we can apply it in our lives and in the lives of others. Our growth in wisdom should be for that purpose, to bolster our faith. I've heard it said, I've seen this in discipleship, but I've heard it said from, uh, from Christian counselors, they can tell if two people come to them that have the exact same, not exact, but similar problems, presenting problems, they can tell if one of them has been discipled really well and one hasn't just by the way that they respond. Not because they have less problems, that's just not true, but because the way they respond to the trials of life is different. They have a different grasp of the, the, the glory and the greatness and majesty of God. Do you, is your knowledge of God sufficient to help you weather the storms of life? Charles Spurgeon, a preacher, said that he learned to kiss the waves that threw him against the rock of ages. Uh, that quote has been money for me. I, I've used that many times just to help myself think through things that are going on in life. He learned to kiss the waves that threw him against the rock of ages. But it was knowing who the rock was that allowed him to kiss those waves. Do you see this as a high calling? Do you see how important it is to know your Bible well enough that you can comfort your own soul and you can help those both Christians and non-Christians in your life? Last be willing to take time to love God with your mind in community. And really these three and four, they kind of overlap, but I want to draw a distinction, so we're doing it anyways. Be willing to love God in community. This is where the church comes in and plays a pivotal role. 
If, if you think of growing in Christian knowledge like a fireplace, and you see, you know, like you, you got fires crackling and popping, and an ember pops out and lands on the mantle, and it goes from hot and red to black and dead immediately, that's what happens when we remove ourselves from Christian community. We fizzle out. How do you love God with your mind in the church? Just a couple ways here. First, be a part of the life of the church. That means Sunday mornings when you come and you're listening to the sermon, it's not just putting my head down for an hour and hurrying back home as fast as I can after. It's being engaged in the life of the church, knowing your brothers and sisters, the people that we've covenanted together with. And so it's the fellowship hour after this and just talking about the sermon. Things you agreed with or disagreed with, I'm open to that. It's, it's trying to apply these things to your life. You have, if you don't have time in the fellowship hour, you have care groups are an option for you or just grab a family member or a friend or anybody for coffee and try to apply this to your lives. Work really hard to not leave God in the sanctuary until next Sunday morning. Second, join a Bible study. Christ Covenant offers Bible studies every fall and every spring semester. The men just finished a study through Daniel. The women just finished the first half of Acts. Both of us will be doing Acts in the spring. So if you want to do Acts, that's what we're doing. Thinking about just a practical example for me of how being in a Bible study helped me. We studied Daniel. I got to meet with a bunch of men at different stages of life and talk through over and over again every week the sovereignty of God throughout various stories uh, through the confusing difficulty of understanding apocalyptic literature and what all the numbers could possibly mean, through the historicity of the times in which Daniel made these prophecies and why that matters because of the specificity of the things that he prophesied, how much God's wisdom is at work in that. And so as we worked through that, I'd read the book of Daniel before, I believed that God a sovereign before, but it helps me see different elements as I hear other brothers applying it to their lives. So we went through an election cycle and we are watching people that we wanted to win lose or people that we didn't want to win. And so one of the things that reading the book of Daniel helped remind us of is there is one king that never changes. All the other kings, they rise up and they fall and God moves every one of them around just like he moves every one of the people that are elected officials in our country around. But God is the king that's always the king. He's never going to change. He always sits on the throne. That was hugely beneficial that we studied that, and then we went through an election cycle. wasn't necessarily intentional, but it was a great blessing. Uh, and just as a sort of a practical note, if you're new or if you have been a part of the church and have thought, yeah, there's probably not a study that I can jump into because of my schedule, we can find one. We meet all over the place, early morning, evenings, different parts of town. Uh, if you want to be in a study and you haven't been able to be in one, just shoot me an email and we can get you plugged in. Uh, third, and probably the most organic of these, and the last one, is grab a couple of friends, pick up a book, and read it together. I think many of us probably have a book on the shelf that's been there for a while that we've thought, I really wish I had time to read that book, but I just don't. I can tell you, if you pick up that book and grab two friends and say, will you read this book with me? you'll find time to read it. That accountability of having brothers or sisters to read a book with is beneficial, and it's good not just for your own soul, but for theirs. We, we all need this community of wrestling with the truths of God together. Uh, or maybe there's a, a topic, maybe one of those objections was concerning for you, and you think, I really would like to know more about these things. If you don't have a specific source, a resource in mind, come and ask, or ask one of the people in the row next to you. We would love to see uh, all of us 
meeting with one another throughout the week, throughout the month. If you want to meet once a week, once a month, I don't care what it is, but are you meeting with brothers and sisters and reading good things that are helping us live wisely together? Small group settings of Christian living in community, seeking to apply truths of the Bible to our lives. That's what the church is supposed to look like, and I really hope that it is. So we've, we've seen why it is we're to pursue a knowledge of God, that he's worthy, he's knowable, there's danger to not doing it. We've seen a handful of ways as to how we can live in light of this knowledge of God and the reality that he is knowable. Now let's just take a second, pray, ask God for help in uh, growing in this knowledge, growing in your love with your mind, uh, not just that we would love him with our mind, but that it would fuel us to loving God with our hearts and our strengths. And then I'll pray for us in a moment.